Hello and welcome again to Sport Unlock, the podcast giving you the lowdown on the week's sports news. And as the Beijing Olympics conclude, we'll explore the latest on the doping case involving a 15-year-old Russian skater. Also, we'll look at the Chinese local organising committee official who got political over Taiwan. Also, this week, we'll analyse what Novak Djokovic said as he broke his silence on the Australia deportation case. Then there's changes in Formula 1 in the fallout from that controversial decision in the season-ending race in Abu Dhabi last year. And those crypto tokens are back in the news with UEFA doing a socios deal that's been criticised by the fans who had been welcoming free tickets for finals. I'm Rob Harris from the Associated Press and alongside me as ever, Tarek Panja from the New York Times and Martin Ziegler from the Times. And we start the show with news about us again and another award nomination. Yeah, so nominated for the uh, podcast of the year by the Sports Journalists Association, Rob. Um, up against some some strong competition, but, um, you know, this, really, uh, this is really uh, great news, really pleased about it. And I think it's testament to your excellent production skills as, as much as anything else I have to say um but it does get to show you know me you and Tarek we, we, we do this we just you know we don't uh, we don't get paid for it we just do it out of our own interest and uh, and I think it's really nice that we've been sort of recognized in this way yeah oh you don't get paid oh have I not mentioned those multi-million <laughs> oh that your our secret sponsorship deals Related party transactions. Yeah, I should declare that. I mean, yeah, it's um, you know, really nice of them to recognise us in the awards. The fact that the the others in the category are Sky, ITV, BBC, The Athletic, and here we are doing it ourselves. And yeah, hopefully, certainly in terms of the feedback we're getting, it's about the strength of the collective and actually, hopefully, the analysis we're all able to bring, as well as the the great guests we've been able to bring on as well when uh, we have time between. The priority of the day jobs yeah and uh, well, our listeners in paraguay probably you know they've, they've clearly had a, had a very important role to play in in uh, <laughs> recognizing us clearly big in terms of their influence on britain sports journalist association and yeah some good news for us and what's been a pretty stormy week well in terms of the weather at least and it really did affect you too but the, the major storms i uh i did uh, I, I was stranded on a train um been down went on a secret squirrel mission to london on wednesday so secret i couldn't even tell you guys i was going um but uh, so we it's did... okay we, we had something better but didn't yeah. tell we didn't you. want to tell you martin it was great martin really good. Was okay okay yeah but anyway so on the way back up to leeds um I thought I'd made it through the the, the, the storms and then uh, just um, about half an hour from Leeds, the train stopped and then we didn't move for two hours. <laughs> the overhead power lines had come down or something had happened there. So, yeah, it had um, fortunately uh, I, I had I had Wi-Fi, my, my, my Wi-Fi, so I was able to work and stuff, but it wasn't a, a pleasant experience. A bit of divine intervention for not telling your pals that you're, you're visiting the, the, the... Yeah, I did think that, actually. I did think that. Anyway, busy week, guys. and We've had another, really another really busy week. So some people say this pod does dwell perhaps on the negatives of sport. We're a bit cynical, but when we're handed the negativity by sport, it's undoubted that we have to cover those stories. And this is a week that ended with two doping cases in the world of athletics. Yeah, and two recordings of this podcast as well, Rob, as a result of this, right? Well, we're giving away, this is the bit we're adding on earlier on from the earlier recording. But we'd like to keep you up to date. <laughs> we, we, we have to do that in order to get our shortlisting for uh, various yeah, awards, don't we? Up to, up to speed of breaking news, and the news from the Court of Arbitration for Sport was that Britain losing their silver medal from the 4x100 relay at the Tokyo Olympics. It was a stunning success, came so close to beating the Italians to gold, but CJ Uja tested positive in the days after the games, or from the sample taken in Tokyo, and now, for only the third time in Olympic history, Britain has been stripped of a medal for doping. Yeah, I mean, they, they, you know, without a doubt, this is Britain's biggest Olympic doping scandal um, within the natural games. Um, most high-profile. UK Athletics had a pretty terrible time. This rounded off an awful games for them. Um, He's he's said he, he is a contaminated supplement, um, 
But, you know, as we know, I think, Tarek, that, that's really no excuse, is it? No, no, that's the the excuse most athletes that have been dinged by a doping positive try to use. In his case, it wasn't just one substance, but two, it seems. The, the statement from the British Olympic Association, I think, is also quite striking because they've been one of the most outspoken uh, National Olympic Associations when it comes to doping. They've said, you know, having spent the last few years retrospectively awarding numerous British athletes with medals that they should have won on the day in Beijing in 2008, London in 2012 and Sochi in 2014. We understand firsthand the hurt and loss doping can cause. And they've apologised to all the athletes who've, who've lost their moments in, in Tokyo's result. And it prevented Britain from matching the 65 medal haul from the London 2012 Games, uh, still the second most successful Olympics for GB after at Rio de Janeiro in 2016. And himself says he apologises. He did try to claim he unknowingly consumed the contaminated supplement. But now it's just awaiting news of his ban, isn't it? Yeah, the Athletics Integrity Unit, will, will I guess, will we'll get onto that pretty quickly now. Um, but I, it, it does strike me, that, 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 funnily enough, that my colleague Rick Broadbent wrote yesterday um, when, when uh, talking about the... Valieva case that it's um, when it comes to the Olympics is that the moral high ground is a sort of murky quicksand best avoided and that couldn't be better put really ahead of this 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 from the sort of British standpoint you know we're, we're criticizing the Russians and rightly so but let's not forget nothing is perfect in uh, in our own back garden no, nothing's perfect but but just to not let the Russians off the hook here <laughs> No, I agree. I agree. I'm not saying it's, that at all. It's all about no. scale as well, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Scale's a responsibility, absolutely, yeah. And those previous two British Olympic doping cases, uh, Judoko, Kerith Brown, 1988 Seoul Games, uh, he tested positive for a diuretic and claimed at the time he wasn't aware really of the doping rules and very different to now, the fact uh, you get emailed them as athletes, you're being updated. So that was his excuse then. And then 2002 Salt Lake City Games, Alan Baxter, he used a nasal inhaler that he bought over the counter. Yeah, there's lots of, lots of, lots of. Can I just make a more general point here? One thing, looking at the um, doping case involving Russia over the last week and, and all the others, the whole anti doping system is one I think that relies on trust. And it's the trust between WADA and the national anti-doping bodies, but also the public and trust in the sports. Um, for me, I, I don't know about you guys, when, when you watch any of these top, top athletes, especially when it comes to, you know, the Olympic arena, sadly for me, it's always, you know, we mentioned a, an asterisk with, with, with Valieva. I kind of watch some, the entire event, and it's sad, sad to be honest, but certain track and field certain other sports with an asterisk and just knowing that, you know, there's a ticking time bomb and in the months and years we're going to find out oh, this person wasn't as good as we thought they were. It's quite sad. Well, we did see Blessing Akabare, the Nigerian sprinter, competing in Tokyo, but only in the heat because before she could compete in the semi-finals for the 100 metres, she was suspended. That was after she tested positive for a blood booster EPO as well as a human growth hormone in the weeks ahead of the Games. And now we have the news of her ban, and it's a pretty hefty one at 10 years. Yeah, they've thrown the book at her, haven't they? I mean, multiple doping breaches, refusing to cooperate with the investigation. I mean, the Athletics Integrity Unit, which I have to say I, I've been quite impressed with in the last couple of years, and they've, 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 they've not held back at all on this 10 years i mean it's that must be some kind of record let it be noted praise on the pod of a sports body <laughs> give it a few weeks Rob. yeah so i'm um, she this is a big name okagbari won silver medal at the 2008 olympics in beijing world championship medals as well so yeah it's what a fall from grace absolutely and the okagbari case is actually interesting for another reason as well this is the case that led to the first arrest in the under the U.S. Rodchenkov Act, this is the sprawling act that allows U.S. authorities to arrest members of the entourage of anyone found guilty in, in a competition anywhere in the world that would involve um, U.S. 
athletes, US TV companies. Um, there was a, uh, a sports performance individual from El Paso who was arrested for supplying the banned substance to Okubare. And, and now, as you said, half of this punishment, this 10 years for Okubare, is not cooperating with, with, the, um, with the investigation, not the uh, criminal investigation, but the one by the Athle- Athletics Integrity Unit. And there was a lot of evidence gathered from her phone when it was seized in the States when she flew back from Japan, wasn't it? That showed some of the communications. Yeah, that's another example of these how these new powers can be used. Well, the final week of the Beijing Olympics has been dominated by the doping case involving the 15-year-old Russian skater Kamila Valieva. News of the positive test for an angina drug only came to light during the Games from a sample taken in December after she'd helped Russia win team gold. She was cleared to continue competing in Beijing despite the revelation and she was leading in the individual competition this week before mistakes led to her finishing fourth. It all avoided a further problematic situation for the ISC, which had said it wouldn't have held a medal ceremony if she'd made the podium because the potential she could have been disqualified once the doping case fully concluded after the Olympics. Certainly... The Chinese authorities will have been delighted about this case dominating the second half of the Games with so many questions about that to the IOC rather than necessarily the persecution of the Uyghur minority in China. But the Valieva case highlights so many issues, Russian doping, leniency, how minors are treated competing at the Olympics and just generally culpability for the athletes, particularly a 15-year-old. Yeah, you're quite right to point out the fact that the you know the the Beijing organisers are sort of probably really pleased that this has taken the uh, the the edge off the the issue of the their treatment of the Uyghurs and other human rights things. But it is a, a, a sort of an Olympic scandal. This story. Um, I mean, I think this was particularly illustrated by the documents you obtained earlier this week, Tarek. Yeah. So. This, this case, which is pretty much hung over half the Olympics and pretty much made life hell for a 15-year-old girl, details emerged of um, the testimony that the CAS panel, the Court of Arbitration panel, heard. And there was, there was more um, that she was taking. It wasn't just the TMZ, that, that heart drug that has been linked to her grandfather, but L-carnitine, uh, a supplement, and also hypoxin, another heart medication for um, another heart medication. Now, raises the question of why a 15-year-old has all of these different potions stuffed in her sample. Yeah, L-carnitine, um, lot of people may remember, that was one of the substances that was used and abused by uh, Alberto Salazar's Nike Oregon project. In fact... Um, I think he actually, that was one of the things that he actually got busted for by the US anti-doping agency because there was in, they were giving infusions that were beyond the legal level. So although it's legal, it's only in small quantities. Um, but it, it's more the fact, why is a 15-year-old being, having all these heart medications? It's basically because they improve the flow of blood to the heart. They increase, they improve stamina. It's, it's um, child exploitation at the, at the best, child abuse at the worst. And actually even... More um, concerning, well, after the uh, she failed to win a medal in her in her last event, was the reaction of her sort of quite um, striking coach. Pretty formidable character. Yes, that's uh, Ettery Tutberidze, the coach, and um, she's uh, got the nickname Cruella Deville. And uh, you've you've looked a bit of about her, her her practices, haven't you, Tarek? Yeah, she she in fact is this medal producer she's a medal factory coach the the, the the those winning russian figure skaters not just at these olympics but in previous ones have all come through her stable and she has um, got this moniker this nickname of uh, cruella deville um in fact uh, one of the skaters that performed at these olympics one of the medalists in fact is not a big fan of her coach, it seems, because the music she chose was Cruella. You know, all that sort of um, lightheartedness aside, again, you know, we're talking about a 15-year-old in this case. The, 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 the woman who won, or the girl who won, was only 17. And 
it does bear a lot of scrutiny it needs to be born sorry on 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 the training program that is producing these athletes for me honestly the the worst the, one of the worst things in fact the worst thing for me watching the worst sight was uh the total and dramatic collapse of Camilla Valieva in that final event of the figure skating don't forget she was leading halfway through despite all that strain and pressure but she she slipped and fell to the floor um, at least twice in her final performance and there were other mishaps she tumbled down to fourth and it was horrible it was horrible to see her sobbing and sort of wailing at the end of it and and her teammate that won the gold was just looking so glum these are pictures that no one wants to see and this is this is this really the olympics is this what sport is about and it raises a question rob martin that why are we having children under so much pressure at the olympics and the IOC president, Thomas Bach, has been asked about the case and particularly he's been talking about her coach. Well, I, I must say I was very, very disturbed yesterday when I watched the competition on, on TV. And saw first uh, on, uh, in her performance how, how high the pressure on her uh, must have been. And I, I know from my athlete's time a little bit uh, about pressure. But th this pressure is beyond my imagination. And in particular for, for a girl of, of 15 years uh, old. And to see her there struggling on the ice, seeing her how she tries to, to compose herself Again, how, how then she, she tries to, to finish uh, her, her, her program. And uh, you, you could, in every movement in, in the body language, you, know, you, you, you could feel that this is a immense, immense mental stress and that maybe uh, you know, she would have preferred just to leave the ice and... Uh, try to, to uh, leave this uh, story uh, behind her. When I afterwards saw how she was received by her closest entourage with uh, such a, what appeared to be a, a tremendous coldness, you, 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 uh, it was chilling. We challenged this decision. We, we went to court. We did not want her to, 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 to participate, and we lost the court case. And this is about uh, the, the, the entourage, uh, because uh, there we, we see you know, that we have extremely limited means to address it, because we we don't have and we are not the police, uh, we we cannot uh, interrogate, uh, we cannot have a formal prosecution uh, uh, procedure. We do still have this oddity that the age limit for the youth Olympic Games is fourteen years old, but you can have children younger than fourteen competing at the main Olympics, which is a, a discrepancy underlining this uh, welfare issue in terms of youngsters competing. Mm -hmm. I never knew that. Rob, which we which we have had, is that right, Rob? Sky Brown at the uh, Tokyo Games, the British skateboarder. Yeah, I think I think the the, the gold and silver medalists, in fact, at, in the skateboard event, were both um, uh, under the age of thirteen or fourteen, if I remember correctly, as well as Sky Brown. Yeah, I never knew that. That's that's a, that's a weird um, but very quite interesting fact. If this case eventually does result in a ban, Valaveva will only be banned for two years rather than for maximum the punishment what should happen to her career now i mean she's going to be associated with this forevermore but how liable was she personally and how does she move on from this yeah it's interesting what what punishment she'll get because one of the reasons that she was allowed to compete was that as a minor she's a so-called protected person and may only get a reprimand the idea was that a provisional suspension potentially is far harsher than any punishment she may have 
got. But but to your wider point, I just think being in the spotlight so young, the emotional toll this will take on her and has taken, uh, you know, it, it doesn't bear thinking about the long long term effects on her, not just as a a sports person athlete, but as a young girl growing up in the world. And I think more widely, there's the there is a, there has to be a focus now. Um, that the IOC have to get involved in this sort of treatment of, of young people by coaches because um, if, you, if you hear some of the, the stories about the, the methods, for example, um, the, the, these these skaters, these figure skaters, the, the, they're basically not allowed to drink water during the competition. You know, they 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 like swill their mouths out with it, but they don't actually drink it because they, you know, even adding half a pound of weight is is, is seen as a sort of competitive disadvantage. So, I mean, if that's what's happening, that's just like, to me, that's just madness. Do I just come back on something? We've heard those condemnatory words from Thomas Bach there about the actions of the entourage and the coach after after the event. But for me, he's been conspicuously missing for the duration of this scandal. And his timing is curious. He's appeared right afterwards. There is no more skating there is no more real, you know, Olympics. There's only a day or two to go. Where has he been? Where has his leadership been? Where, is his, where have his words of anguish been during this entire thing? And, you know, it's, it's part, of, part of the course, I, I'd say. This, this, this whole scandal required a bit of leadership. But again, he kind of went missing and disappeared into the background. And only now he's shown up that the, the trouble has passed. And for me, that's, that's Rob, that's been kind of the pattern when it comes to Russia and Thomas Bach? Well, all along, the lack of rigour in terms of the punishment towards Russia, the loose application of the rules, perhaps allowing Russia still to compete as the ROC, and really Thomas Bach reflecting throughout his entire presidency that uh, he's more likely to act as cover for these countries that perhaps uh, are embroiled in some difficulties rather than uh, going on the attack, isn't he? I mean, I, I think that's yeah. probably the first time in about eight years he actually said anything slightly negative about Russia. Obviously, these have been the games when, as we are mentioning at the start, all the questions about whether they should be taking place in a country, the US accused of genocide towards the Uyghur population. And the IOC will have now had for the last week a few questions about that, but they're obviously getting a lot of questions still from Chinese journalists that are focused on Chinese interests um, and also defending China's claim, would you say, towards Taiwan in some of those questions? Uh, Rob, it was the most remarkable thing I've seen at a press conference in a long time, actually. Bark and the IOC and China have been holding this line that this is about sport, can't have any political discussion. And and towards the Olympics, late this week, the <laughs> Bokog, the representative of the Beijing Olympic Committee, the spokeswoman, a lady called Yan Jirong, you know, launched into <laughs> what can only be seen as a massively political um, diatribe statement about China and its place in the world, particularly when it comes to Taiwan. She, she, she was asked about whether athletes from Taiwan would march in the, in the closing ceremony. And she pretty much said, look, give me the mic. Here's what I want to say. What I want to say is that there is only one China in the world. Um, and that Taiwan is part of that one China. You know, this, she called it an indivisible part of China. And this, this is completely contrary to, to the, um, IOC's rules about um, politics and sport. In fact, Rule 50, the demonstration of uh, political, or religious or racial propaganda. And again, finally, at the end of the Olympics, we have Thomas Bach saying, oh, um, I'm going to get in touch with them immediately after this press conference to ask. But guess what? By the time any of this is resolved, the Olympics are finished. There is not going to be an Olympics in China, probably for decades now, long after Thomas Bach is gone, what is the point? Well, let's hear some of that remarkable answer from the Chinese local organising committee spokeswoman, Yang Zhirong. You'll hear us speaking in English, and then the translator kicks in. Could I just make uh, uh, some supplementary remarks? Because uh, this is something that we, we, we really have to take a very uh, uh, solemn uh, position 
What I want to say is that there is only one China in the world. Taiwan is an indivisible part of China. This is a well-recognized international principle and well-recognized in the international community. We are always um, against uh, the idea of politicizing the Olympic Games. Uh, IOC has uh, 206 members, including People's Republic of China, a National Olympic Committee, including uh, China's Chinese uh, Taipei, the regional Olympic Committee. And an interesting role for the IOC spokesman Mark Adams, who's had to sort of deal with all these issues and how he responds without actually attempting to say anything. But in his non-answers, he ends up sort of almost being covering for, for China. So he gave the answer, these are views of all... So he said there are all sorts of things around the world, but our job is to make sure that the games take place. Is it their job just to make sure that the games go ahead or actually do they have higher moral duties because certainly what we haven't got any clear out of these games is where is the morality red line in terms of which country would chart would the IOC not take the games to what would be enough to, to, to what would be a barrier what would be an act of atrocity that would be too much for the IOC I, I don't think anything is too much I think that's been clear through the Russian doping scandal to this they, these they, they want these events to take place, come hell or high water, whatever the, the, the human rights records are. And just to go back on that spokeswoman, Yan Jirong, in that extraordinary press conference, she also uh, weighed into the um, issue of the Uyghur um, situation in Xinjiang province, the, the, the more than a million Uyghurs there detained. And she described those that situation as, as, as lies. She said, um, I wish she was asked about that, um, the IOC, again, has done everything it can not to talk about it, but she didn't. I think these questions are based on lies. Um, some authorities have already disputed such false information with a lot of solid evidence. You're very welcome to refer to all those evidence and facts. Those are her words. Yet human rights groups and, and Western governments have described what's going on there as genocide. You know, this is what these games are going to be remembered for, sadly. I, I can't think of any great sporting moments uh, maybe you two can, but we've had this doping controversy and then this 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 taking place against the back of this horrible human rights record. Yeah, I suppose the sporting moments we might even remember are the, the, the setbacks like um, Schifrin. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, unless we're talking about sort of things like, you know, terrorist, terrorist incidents which have affected previous Olympics, a bit, there's, there's, there's been nothing like this. The, the IC actually does perhaps have a more relaxing... Um decade or so now the fact Paris 2024 Los Angeles 2028 and Brisbane 2032 so perhaps only looking at 2036 now as the next games in terms of the summer games at the very least where they would encounter such uh, challenging moments perhaps uh, the next games in 2026 uh, are in uh, Milan they've got organizational issues instead perhaps more traditional issues facing the Olympics with that yeah, it's going to you know it's going to be a, a sort of a decade of commercial success for the Olympics, I guess, coming up now, and um, also one which I imagine there won't be nearly so much um, human rights scrutiny, which um, I'm sure will become as a relief to the IOC. But it's uh, you know, it's important that they get keep having their feet held to the fire. Yeah, of course, until we get the 2030 Winter Olympics, perhaps in the UAE or Qatar. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, well, you know, Rob... That... But we have had another example this week of the removal of bidding in the choosing of these mega events. So Brisbane got the 2032 Games without any formal process, no contested election. And now Australia has effectively been handed another event, the 2026 Commonwealth Games this week, with exclusive negotiations being entered to with Victoria uh, in Australia. So no formal process and... We've basically got the Commonwealth Games just yo-yoing back between Britain and Australia. So whether that tells us more about lack of interest in the Commonwealth Games hosting or more about these big events organisers just preferring to be able to do a deal and get it over with. No, it's much more about the fact that very few people want to host it, actually. And 
um, I sort of almost laughed when I saw the vented into a period of exclusive negotiation. But nobody, nobody, no one else has indicated any interest in hosting it. So um, I think it came as a massive relief to the Commonwealth Games Federation that that um, the Australians were, were willing to step in. So it's 2014, the UK, 2018, Australia, 2022, um, UK, 2026, Australia. Is it just going to con continue doing that? Maybe Canada may occasionally go in, but otherwise, I think it, the whole thing needs a bit of a look at that 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 event. 2030, maybe in the metaverse. Well, by the, yeah, I was going to say by then, Rob, we talked about this last week, the Commonwealth Games, looking at adding esports. This is some we're looking at the future and speaking speaking of the future Rob there was a there was a a crypto deal uh, announced this week that's caused a bit of disquiet yes um, I'm sure Alexander Dreyfus would be delighted to have a crypto uh, metaverse games and uh, it's UEFA this week the good and bad side we might say of UEFA on Monday we had UEFA announcing 10,000 free tickets for the Men's Champions League final this season, 5,000 per team. Also, thousands of free tickets for the Europa Conference League final, the Europa League final, the Women's Champions League final as well. Um, a great moment in terms of solidarity with the fans they were showing and trying to sort of talk about the importance of supporters. Then next day, it was announced by Socios, those fan tokens, that they would be entering into a sponsorship with UEFA. Interestingly, UEFA... Never tweeted out about this statement. They've never sent it out as a press release. And the only way I could actually find it on the UEFA website was through Google. It wasn't actually showing on any listings within the website itself. Now, why would someone not be wanting to trumpet a deal with Socios? Undoubtedly, because there's a lot of um, concern around the whole cryptocurrency uh, world. Um, and with... with, with uh, sorry. And, you know, with due reason, I mean, we've just seen this week, um, McLaren race, Formula One racing, and I think we said a, a few weeks ago that they'd, they'd terminated a deal with Iconic. Now they've dumped uh, Bitchy, which is a Turkish-based cryptocurrency, it sponsors Wolves, Watford, football clubs, lots of other things, but um, they've not paid up on time from what I understand so um, McLaren have just um, terminated that as well so it just shows people have bought these tokens by the way the McLaren tokens I mean Tarek it's, they're just left holding them yeah I've been trying to talk to McLaren this week about this to clarify what what it means to token holders and looking at the future as well with all these sports teams around the world doing such deals what happens when it goes south now McLaren, all they could say is that they're in discussions with this company, Bitchy.com, in relation to existing token holders. Well, I don't know what that means. Now, if you're uh, you know, holding on to these things, what value do they have? Some would say they've never had any value in the first place, right? You're, you're kind of creating something out of thin air. And this also is another one uh, to put in the basket of legal questions. Socios, in fact, are in their own legal quagmire in Argentina after the Argentine FA that did a deal with Socios for tokens, basically said, no, we don't want that agreement anymore. We're going to go with another company. Now, if you were a, a Socio fan token holder for, for, for Argentina, all of, all of that kind of engagement they're selling, and we've questioned what type of engagement that really is, no longer ceases to exist. So it is this kind of valueless floating cryptocurrency, I suppose. That's the point. If the sponsorship deal as well ends between the crypto firm, Socios, and the sports entity, well, they've got no fan engagement services to offer. So what value would they have on their, their Chili's platform? Now, the thing about these UEFA tokens is, which they only made clear slightly after the announcement, was the fact they wouldn't cost anything. But the only way to get one of the tokens was to um, already have one with a club. So, so you did have to have a, uh, you did have to have already invested in these tokens. Yeah, and Martin, um, you know this, you could get the sense of the nerviness at UEFA about this. I've spoken to people there who are really unhappy, to be honest, that they've gone into this agreement. And also, a funny situation here for me as well. Uh, someone, someone there was kind of around the deal, called up to to try and, you know, almost embarrassed to explain that they've done this. Um, and to kind of explain the rationale, saying, look, we, we, we don't really understand this space, but it looks like everyone's doing it. It's the future. 
we're just dipping our toes into it, almost reversing into it. But it just seems in football, any money, wherever it's coming from, it needs to be needs to be taken as quickly as possible. And that's not really no, right for a governing I think body. That's quite right. And actually, you're right. It's not just football. The, the Formula One, they're just they're falling over themselves to get into this. I mean, when I when I like made did ask some questions around the the, the McLaren Bitchy thing, someone said, "Oh well, most of the tokens are bought are, are bought by crypto speculators anyway." I'm saying so, it, you know, it doesn't it doesn't matter because they're not real fans. So, but it, the, that's not the, the idea of it is for fans to buy them. That's what that's what it's sold on. And Alexander Dreyfus, the CEO of Socios, tweeted, haters will hate. Now, is he calling fans haters? Because there's a lot of fan groups who were uh, criticising this. So certainly that might show his true colours. I did ask why the statement, which was published on the internet, not just sent out to the media, contained no details of the risks of cryptocurrencies. And uh, amongst the replies, they said, well, um, this was a corporate PR announcing a partnership. And once I started to say that, no, it was being tweeted out to a wider audience by Dreyfus. It wasn't just a corporate announcement. The comment from the Chile's Socios spokesman was, we have no further comments on these topics. They want to sort of cut off engagement. Nice, nice and opaque, just like a lot of this industry. Mm. So UEFA did trumpet. They were, as well as giving away these free Champions League finals, tickets and the tickets to the other finals, were freezing the prices of Category 3 and 4 tickets for the Champions League final at uh, 180 uh, euros and 70 euros but one thing was missing which was well what about the top tiers of tickets categories one and two that wasn't in the announcement and after a bit of asking around discovered oh actually the prices in category two will be jumping from 450 euros to 490 euros and category one will be jumping from 600 euros to 690 euros so pretty steep climb but i suppose still at least not the the thousands of dollars minimum it costs to be at the super bowl last weekend yeah i mean it's, it's actually the super bowl is quite an interesting one. it's actually very very difficult to find out what the base ticket prices are for the super bowl um i've, I've looked into this it, it, it doesn't seem to operate like for example a champions league or a football match um so when you, you find find out how much uh, you know what is the cheapest ticket you can get to the super bowl that it it basically it just sounds like it's all done through secondary ticket agencies, StubHub, Viagogo, that sort of thing. If only we'd known a week ago, we could have flown out to LA to find the answer. Mm, yeah, well, it looks like Martin. <laughs> I've noticed all these sports industry. That's the other thing. These sports industry execs seem to be invited to to each other's events. Like I don't know, half a dozen people called or sent videos or pictures of, oh look, here's me at the Super Bowl. And I wonder how many how many actual fans end up going to to these events. You've got all these hangers on. In fact, Rob, you you had um, some questions for FIFA this week. We mentioned the socios guy. He was in the FIFA executive box. He was at the uh, Club World Cup finals. Rob. Yeah, he was posting a picture in the VIP box. He had the VIP lanyard on, and perhaps. Most significantly, because you know fans have been called out for this sort of thing, he was wearing a branded face mask, Socios, not a FIFA sponsor, and he was going around the FIFA VIP box taking pictures wearing it, which is a bit of ambush marketing. Eventually, did discover he was there with Palmeiros, but uh, still there in the, fi- the heart of FIFA VIPs, and uh, yeah, led to some questions to them. There were. FIFA people at the Super Bowl as well, talking about people going along for the show and also members of the Qatar World Cup organising committee checking it out. But it does seem like more of a, an entertainment event rather than a packed full of sports aficionados in a way that I, don't know, I, think, I think a World Cup final is more a lot of football fans. Yeah. Um, talking about Abu Dhabi, which we just mentioned there, Rob, um, interesting news this week. Um, relating to that infamous Grand Prix. The the finish, that last lap, that dramatic finish that saw Max Verstappen pretty much given the chequered flag by the race director, Michael Massey, to pass Lewis Hamilton. Uh, it looked like rules were being made on the hoof, rules that benefited Max Verstappen and uh, what some would say robbed Lewis Hamilton of another world championship so that that man the race director michael massey there's been a lot of speculation about his future and that that ended this week michael massey is no longer going to be the formula one race director 
according to the FIA, the governing body for for the for motorsport. Instead, he's going to be replaced by two new officials, uh, a German guy called Niels Wittich and a Brazilian Eduardo Freitas, two experienced men. They'll 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 uh, replace it. Massey though will be retained in another role. Uh, and I, Martin, I found that quite quite interesting um, in the sense. Two people doing the job instead of one, and Massey's still there. It's a sort of acceptance that they, they they screwed up, but they don't want to you know kill the kill the the person who did it. Well, that, that would be admitting too much. But a quite a sort of funny side story to this is that the um, which and something which must certainly um, would have annoyed Ferrari is that the that the new president of the of the FIA, Mohammed Ben Suleyem. That uh, he'd he'd sort of announced this in a video in a in a short video, but but they they, they released it in, right in the middle of this um, Ferrari launch where everyone was there. So it's like one of those incidents where everyone, everyone starts looking at their phones and thinks, uh, and oh, and, and, you know, ignoring what's actually happening on the in the main presentation. We'll need a steward's inquiry there, Martin. <laughs> it's it's also a way of keeping Massey inside the tent, isn't it? Yeah, good point. Actually, good point, Rob. Yeah, but also, I, Rob, that is a good point. I, I felt this was, we've seen this these sports governing bodies, we talk about it every week here. I felt it was a bit of a fig leaf. By saying you need two people in, instead of one, it kind of says, oh, you know, it, it's not really his fault. The work was almost too much. So it's it's not acknowledging an error as such. It's just saying that a workload has changed. And also, by, they haven't reprimanded Massey at all for making the rules up. I, I just feel like, this is the FIA's way of saying, yes, we've listened, we've changed, but we, we still don't accept any responsibility for what happened. There was no mistake. I mean, they're pretty fortunate, I would say, the Formula 1 organisers, the fact that they haven't spent weeks and weeks in court during the off-season because Mercedes could potentially have really been challenging this because of the wrong application of the uh, the regulations. Yeah, I wonder if things have been, you know, if, 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 if Lewis Hamilton hadn't been won so many titles, or if it had been his first one, then I think it might have been a very different story. But um, I think they just probably taken it on the chin. Yeah, and there will be a new virtual race control room that some are saying is like VAR. And also there will no longer be direct communications between the race director and the teams allowed during the races. Oh, well, that's gonna that's a, that's gonna be a, a shame, I suppose. It's the right thing to do, but it was it was um, it was highly entertaining. We got some of the audio as well from that last um, lap fiasco. We had Toto Wolf. We had um, uh, Christian Horner from uh, Red Bull haranguing Michael Massey, and I just couldn't believe it. I, I'm I'm not someone who follows motorsport that closely, and I just thought, imagine if football managers could talk to the VAR control room. That's what it felt like. Such a high-pressure moment. Mike, Michael, this isn't right. Go ahead, Toto. You need to reinstate the lap before. That's not right. Toto? Yes. It's called a motor race, OK? Sorry? We went to car racing. Oh, we just had to listen to that again, didn't we? That moment from the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix with Massey and Toto Wolff, the, uh, the Mercedes boss. And he's been reunited in public, at least this week, with Lewis Hamilton, who's now trying to regain his F1 world title, the new season beginning in March. He'd been pretty quiet for a few weeks, uh, Lewis Hamilton, raising doubts about just would he be back racing again? Well, moving away from F1 to tennis, someone who's been pretty quiet as well in recent weeks is Novak Djokovic, certainly since being deported from Australia in that vaccination row. We have heard from him now this week in an interview with the BBC and it was an interview that points to perhaps some people around him. It seemed very slick, some of the answers. Yeah, Freud's, uh, Freud's London agency, um, they were involved in setting that up, from what I understand. And he certainly was very well prepared. I mean, Amal Rajan was the, the, the person chosen to do the interview rather than the sports person. I mean, I think generally it was quite a, a sort of good interview. I, I did think they could have made more about, because it was actually the BBC which delved into the data around the sort of you know this whole thing about his positive his um positive test before the in december before the australian open that was the positive test he needed to be exempt from the vaccine mandate and conveniently he tested positive just a couple of weeks before he was due in australia was that the same test that was negative as well when you when when they it looked like it changed right no he wasn't he wasn't asked about that he wasn't asked about the discrepancy in the in the in the in the, in the, the coding the fact that the uh, the, the, the positive tests had, had was um, 
the, the numbers indicated it, it was it was taken um, before the the negative test. Why, Martin? Why? Well, <laughs> thank you. Yes, that was a. That was one of one of the questions that stated by Amal Rajan. Why Novak? Why? Anyway, but so uh, I don't think we learned a huge a huge amount apart from the fact that he's probably not he's not going to go to the French Open. We'll go to Wimbledon, and then we'll see what happens about the U.S. Open. Just from a media point of view, it was a win for Rajan, uh, uh, an exclusive for the BBC, and Djokovic. It can, Got his well prepped. Djokovic got his points across. Uh, uh, do we do we learn any more apart from um, the fact this guy is trying desperately to to repair his absolutely tattered reputation? And that's what it seemed about his very careful answers about why he wasn't vaccinated, respectful towards the vaccines and personal choice. Also trying to underplay his concerns about being in the detention hotel in Melbourne. That uh, you know, this was an attempt at sort of moving on, rebuilding his uh, career. But the thing is, vaccine mandates are being lifted all around the world, even more so in in the coming weeks and months. So I don't think it's really going to impact him unless sports events themselves impose more rigorous conditions than countries. Yeah, a lot, lot of branding. He also said, uh, guys, if I remember correctly, that he's not um, in league with this anti-vax movement as well. He wanted to make that clear. Because it, it, for all intents and purposes, with his behaviour, it looked over the last year or more, it looks like he certainly was. Well, a um, bit of rugby news this week, an empty week in the Six Nations fallow week. But um, the debate that seems to re-emerge all the time about which teams exactly are taking part in the Six Nations, because we have Italy who are absolute no-hopers. And now potentially more talk again of will South Africa replace Italy to join the Six Nations? Yeah, so this story emerged um, that the, the South African Rugby Union um, are keen to join the Six Nations, um, and so whether that would be an expanded competition to seven or replacing Italy. Um, so from what I understand is that they they made this approach in December, um, said they wanted to join uh, rather than play in the, this competition with Australia and New Zealand, which is sort of fairly obviously massive thing really. But we've already seen South African club teams joining Northern Hemisphere tournaments, so he may say that it's it, it's logical. But um, Italy would have to agree to be to be kicked out themselves. That's one issue. And the other thing is, from my understanding, is the um, they've the, the Six Nations have already formally responded to South Africa and say they're not interested. So um, I think that will be kicked into touch at least for the time being. And I think that you know the fact. Italy under 20s beat England under 20s as a sign that maybe things might change in the future in terms of their competitiveness. I shouldn't have written off Italy so much, should I? Well, no, I think I think I think historically you're right. Historically you're right, Rob. Financially, pretty important for Italy to be in the Six Nations still, but not quite as lucrative as the deal struck this week by New Zealand Rugby. It had been opposed by the Players Union, but they've overcome the opposition to get through the partnership with the US private equity firm Silver Lake and what it means is Silver Lake are going to invest 134 million dollars in a new commercial entity that's going to be in charge of all the revenue generating parts of rugby in New Zealand it effectively gives Silver Lake a stake of up to about eight percent depending on how it all shapes up and it does value the commercial interests of New Zealand rugby at over two billion dollars. Silver Lake familiar in the world of football to uh, those who remember the deal of Manchester City in 2019. They got a 500 million dollar stake in the City Football Group. It dilutes the Abu Dhabi ownership. Uh, you know, pretty significant injection of cash there. And talking of finances in the world of sport in the Middle East, we've Managed to nearly reach the end of an episode, but not quite, of mentioning Saudi Arabia and sport this week. And it all relates to that ongoing battle, splitting golf over the potential Saudi investment that's already out there and whether or not to accept it. Yeah, we've got, um, I think we talked about it, haven't we? Hundreds of, hundreds of millions of dollars being thrown at various big names. 
And I think uh, $100 million just to one player in Brian Deschambeau. But uh, other people have been speaking about uh, about the Saudis, other golfers this week. Yes, they have. They have. It's, yeah, and it's it, it, it kind of cuts through all the noise and all the kind of wishy-washy reasons and cuts to, to the chase here. Phil Mickelson has <laughs> come out with some pretty extraordinary comments in a telephone interview with the golf writer Alan Shipnuck for a book he's writing. Um, and the, these comments are, are out now. They were, they were made some, some weeks ago and addressing the controversy around Saudi Arabia and, and these allegations of sports washing. This is what he said. And these are quotes. They're scary motherfuckers to get involved with. We know they killed Khashoggi and have a horrible record in human rights. They execute people over there for being gay. Knowing all of this, why would I even consider it? <laughs> and he's well, because it's a once-in-life op- opportunity to reshape how the PGA Tour operates. They've been able to get by with manipulative, coercive, strong-arm tactics because we, the players, had no recourse. <laughs> well, at least um, Phil Mickelson sets out what his priorities are there, guys. At least he acknowledges the issues, which is uh, <laughs> more than some people involved in the world of sports washing do. Of course, Mohammed bin Salman does deny direct involvement in the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, whose body parts have never been found. Yeah, well, That brings an end to this week's episode of Sport Unlocked. Uh, no time to get into some other breaking news on Major League Baseball. One to follow in the coming weeks, the lockout there. Now spring training games have been cancelled until the start of March at least. Interesting. Yeah, I look forward to delving into that bit more in the future. Great uh, great week, guys. Another, another fun-packed and action-packed Pod. Hopefully a bit more positive news next week. We'll certainly try, Rob. Well, we started with positives, our latest nomination. So thanks for everyone for listening and enjoy your sports viewing in the days ahead. Of course, any feedback, we're at Sport Unlocked on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. But for now, goodbye. Goodbye.